The What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. This is episode 14 of the What Would It Take podcast. And today we're asking the question, what would it take to remember what was lost? Listen in to find out. This episode is going to be a little bit different than most other episodes that you've heard on this podcast, primarily because I'm changing the format. We're dealing with Black History Month, and I just wanted to take a moment, and instead of focusing solely on a problem, I wanted to invite us to remember, uh, to remember what once was, to remember Black ingenuity, Black greatness, Black wisdom, and in doing so, to recall our potential, to recall what could be when white supremacy is interrupted and ultimately defeated. So that's the purpose of this episode, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to remember what was lost. Black History Month features the acknowledgement and celebration of the millions of African Americans and black folks that have shaped the United States. We talk about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and Rosa Parks. We mention George Washington Carver, Frederick Douglass, and President Barack Obama. Sometimes we might even throw in names like Claudette Colvin, Fred Hampton, or Angela Davis. And while I'm thankful that these stories get told, I also want to bring out the stories that are told less often. I want us to remember. So have you heard about the story of Central Park? Well, I mean, of course you have. You know Central Park, the world-famous park in New York. In fact, it's, it's incredible. It's phenomenal. But do you know about Seneca Falls? Probably not. Because Seneca Falls was a predominantly black village or town located on the side of present-day Central Park. On September 27, 1825, a young black man named Andrew Williams purchased three plots of land from a white farmer named John Whitehead, who owned the land, and that later became Seneca Village. Later that same day, another man named Epiphany Davis purchased another 12 lots, and the AME Zion Church bought an additional six lots. And so between the purchases of the AME Zion Church, Epiphany Davis, and Andrew Williams, Seneca Village was born. By 1832, 24 plots of land had been sold to African Americans, and the population kept growing. By 1855, Seneca Village was about 30% Irish as the Great Potato Famine saw Irish immigrants migrate and move into Seneca Village. At this time, it had anywhere from 260 to 350 residents, most of whom had lived there for 20 or more years. And maybe even more remarkable was that of the 12 to 13,000 African Americans in the state of New York, less than 90 to 100 of them were eligible to vote. Yes, you heard that right. There were roughly 13,000 African Americans in New York, and 90 to 100 of them were eligible to vote. And of those, 10 lived in Seneca Village. That means that roughly 10% of the African-American voting population at that time was in Seneca Village. The neighborhood, while not technically a black Wall Street, had become a place where poor black folks could get a foothold in society. There were three churches, two schools, and two cemeteries. So by all accounts, this was a thriving community. I say was a thriving community because something happened. Some folks got it in their heads that the city of New York needed a large park, and they began looking for possible tracts of land to acquire. 
they first looked at a tract of land known as Jones Wood, which was occupied by several wealthy families. And these families were able to block the acquisition of their land through the courts. So after multiple failed attempts to acquire this piece of land named Jones Wood, a committee was established to begin purchasing land. And guess what? Seneca Village was targeted. In the years leading up to this, the ground of public opinion had been paved as Seneca Village was described as a series of shanty towns, and its residents were depicted as squatters, vagabonds, and just plain wretched. Like, yes, newspaper articles literally used the word wretched to describe the people living in that village. And by July of 1855, those residents of Seneca Village that owned land were offered an average of $700 for their property, with others receiving significantly more. And since some of the first residents purchased their property for just $125, this represented a significant increase. Still, many folks didn't own their land or homes, and they were forced out through police violence, regulatory enforcement, and financial pressure. For two years, the residents fought to keep their land, but unlike the wealthier folks of Joneswood, they weren't successful. And by 1857, every former resident had been evicted. Buildings were soon raised so that Central Park could be created. So the next time you hear about Central Park or visit it, take note and remember those residents that lost their homes, their land, and their communities so that Central Park could exist. Amber Ruffin has a segment on her show that details several other black towns that were literally buried underwater. Seneca Village is unfortunately just one example of a thriving black community that was destroyed at the hands of white folks. Another famous example you may have heard of is Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. A race massacre erupted and white citizens, along with law enforcement officials, burned down the black neighborhood of Tulsa known as Greenwood or Black Wall Street. They were jealous of the economic success of the black residents and used a rape accusation as an excuse for mob violence. They even bombed the neighborhood, destroying businesses and homes. Up to 300 people may have died in the massacre, while hundreds of others were forced to flee, losing their income, their savings, their businesses, and much, much more. This story was most recently depicted in the hit show Lovecraft Country, so if you haven't seen that episode, I recommend checking it out. It's, it's a brutal and difficult watch, but it's important to understand the history and the stories of those who suffered during that time. And guess what? The Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa wasn't the only black Wall Street. There's the Haiti community in Durham, North Carolina, which is credited by some as being the first fully self-sufficient black community with its own banks, a library, hotels, and over 200 other businesses. The community began to decline during the all-too-familiar process of, quote, urban renewal, which just means that people of color are going to lose their income, their property, and key elements of their community so that wealthier white folks can have nicer things. During this process, a freeway was built through the community, resulting in its slow decline. In the early 20th century, a neighborhood of Richmond called Jackson Ward was a thriving black community, so much so that it was called the Harlem of the South, the birthplace of black capitalism, and Black Wall Street. Much like the Haiti community, Jackson Ward's decline began when the all-white city council wanted to, quote, revitalize the city. Federal housing was built, but only 25 of the neighborhood's 297 residents were allowed to live there, and later a section of Interstate 95 was built right through the community. 
And folks, whenever you break up a community or neighborhood with a highway or interstate, you essentially destroy it. You're basically crippling it and sucking the life force out of it. This happened in Durham. This happened in the Jackson Ward neighborhood of Richmond. This happened in Indianapolis, Indiana. This is a key strategy that folks have used for a while now to cripple black communities so that white communities, white business owners, white politicians can benefit. It happens time and time again. Finally, there is Boley, Oklahoma, which was a city incorporated in 1903. Booker T. Washington called it the finest black town in the world. And at its height, it boasted 4,000 residents, a newspaper, two colleges, its own water system, a black-owned electrical plant, five grocery stores, five hotels, seven restaurants, four cotton gins, three drugstores, a jewelry store, four department stores, two insurance companies, two photographers, and an ice plant. It was a refuge for black folks who couldn't shop or stay at the other towns in the area due to segregation. Boley declined during the Great Depression and World War II, but it still exists today and boasts one of the world's largest and most popular black rodeos. And there are still other examples of black neighborhoods, towns, and cities that defied the narratives of their towns and became havens. But places like Boley are few and far between. I'm telling these stories not to remind us of the multiple ways that the government has continually screwed black folks and their communities over, although I do want you to take note of that, especially if you're listening and you're white. Because it's important to remember the ways that white supremacy is utilized and has been utilized to destroy, deconstruct, and really just break down the very fabric of black life and the black communities. And many times, our politicians, our business owners, and churchgoers have been all too keen to participate in this process, to participate in this violence, and then just pretend like it never happened. But more importantly, I'm telling these stories to showcase, highlight, and remind us of the resilience of black folks. Before the Civil War, there were black landowners, grocers, teachers, and voters in New York. After Reconstruction, there were black doctors, pastors, and hotel workers in Oklahoma, Alabama, and Virginia. During the height of Jim Crow segregation and then the Civil Rights Movement, there were black artists, politicians, authors, and chefs all across the nation. Yes, many of these communities were disrupted, displaced, or outright destroyed by the systemic and personal violence of white supremacy and racism. But we already knew that. We hold the rage of our story, of our history, in our bones, and the tears of our ancestors in our hearts with every passing moment. But in each of these stories, I also see a reminder of black resilience, ingenuity, and excellence. A reminder that we always find a way to not only survive, but to thrive, even when we shouldn't. And it turns out that Maya Angelou was right. Still, like air, we rise. And sometimes we need to remember what we're capable of before we can ask ourselves, what would it take? Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the What Would It Take podcast. If you appreciate this podcast and the content I'm putting out, take a moment and leave me a five-star rating. That is the fastest way for new listeners to find this content and information and the easiest way for you to support my work. So take a moment, leave me that five-star rating. I appreciate it. To find out more about me and what I do, you're welcome to follow me on Facebook at Benjamin J. Tapper 
You can also follow me on Instagram at Thoughtful Revolutionary. That's Thoughtful underscore Revolutionary. And you can check out my blog on Substack called The Mix. This is a series of writings about belonging and the experience of being multiracial in the United States. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for your support. If you liked this episode format, feel free to give me some feedback. You can do that again on my social media channels or send me an email at benjaminjtapper at gmail.com. That's benjaminjtapper at gmail.com. I'd love your feedback, ideas for new episodes, or if you've got a creative project you want to collaborate on, hit me up and we can see what we can get going. All right, y'all. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope that you are uh, learning and sharing more content about the resilience and beauty of Black folks during Black History Month. And I look forward to connecting with you soon. Take care. Take care.